I know some of you are probably hoping that our second song we sang as the kids were going away, as we sang this little line of mine there, y'all would be able to, to be doing that whole hide it under a bushel. No! You know, I mean, that's the exciting part. And we didn't even get to not letting Satan it out. I mean, there's a lot more verses of this. Feel free to sing those on your way home today. I think it'll be great. This year, as we are moving through the Sundays of Lent, we're going to be dealing with different phrases, different statements that Jesus makes. And the, the, today, our passage comes to us from the Gospel of John, when Jesus makes one of these very unique statements. In the 8th chapter, in the 12th verse, Jesus says, and again Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, and as we're looking at these passages, often when we look at a certain passage of Scripture, we, we need to back up maybe two or three verses so that we can set it in the environment where it originally took place. Where was Jesus? Who was there? What was his audience? That kind of thing. But this time, today, we, we need to put the whole series into perspective. And in order to do that, in order to fully understand what Jesus says and why it's important, why it's these, these certain statements of Jesus stand out to us in the gospel, well, in order to do that, then we have to back up quite a bit, not just a few verses. We have to go back and see why these statements Jesus makes are powerful but also controversial. And to understand what Jesus is saying, Jesus is talking about how he is part of God's full redemptive work begun long ago. And now if we were on television or in a movie, this would be that moment when the the screen would get all blurry and squiggly because this is when we're going to do a major flashback. We have to go back, not just a few verses, but we have to flash back a long way. Jesus is in the first century AD, and we have to go all the way back to the time of Moses so that we can understand the power of what's happening in these statements. Moses is, in the, in the book of Exodus, Moses is out in the land of Midian. And Moses is tending to the sheep of his father-in-law Jethro on a hillside. And as Moses moves along he, with the sheep, he notices something, catches his eye, and he goes over to examine it more closely. It's a, a bush that is on fire, but the fire is not consuming the bush. Now that's odd. So Moses gets closer and closer, and as he does and begins to inspect what's happening before him, suddenly a voice comes from the bush. And it says, take off your shoes, Moses. You are standing on holy ground. Imagine the shock of that. Not only is the bush not consumed by the fire, but now a voice is coming from the bush, and the voice knows Moses by name. So Moses stands there, sandals off, and he hears the voice continue. I have I've heard the suffering of my people, Israel. 
and I'm going to help them. I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Now remember, at this point, the Israelites have been slaves in Egypt for years and years and years. And Moses, though he was Jewish, he had been raised as a son of Pharaoh. But he had gone out one day and he had killed an Egyptian overseer. And now he is on the run and he has fled to the land of Midian. And he's saving his own life by being there. And now God tells him, you need to go and talk to Pharaoh. And tell him to set my people free. So Moses does what probably any of us would do in that moment. He begins to give God all of the reasons why he is not the man for the job. I mean, he could nominate a few people, but he is not the guy. But God finally tells him that he absolutely is. Without question, without fail, he is the one to go. And so in the third chapter of Exodus, Moses says to God, If I go... If, still if, if I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask, what's his name? What am I going to say to them? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. That's what you'll say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. I am. Now that is an interesting name for God. In Hebrew, it's believed to be pronounced Yahweh. But in the Middle Ages, there actually was a mispronunciation of it. Because remember, the, there are no vowels in the Hebrew language. That's why I say it's believed to be pronounced Yahweh. But unless we're in in ancient Israel, we're not that confident. We think, we believe that's what it says. There's no vowels in the Hebrew language. And so what you get is the tetragrammaton of Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. That's all you get. So in the Middle Ages, they were trying to fill in the vowels and trying to come up with a pronunciation. And they actually pronounced it as Jehovah. And so the mispronunciation of Jehovah and Yahweh mean the same thing. I am. I am who I am. But all in all, it's a strange name, isn't it? I am. Think of all the little G-gods you have heard of over the years in in studying history and, and, and world cultures. They always have a name that seems to carry more oomph or more panache, more style. Like in the Old Testament, you had the the god Baal. Well, when I was in seminary, they told me that I had to pronounce the name Baal, Baal. Of course, I pronounced it Baal, and they were confident I was from Alabama. And we just left it at that. But Baal was the god of fertility among the Canaanite people and the Phoenician people. If you remember your Greek mythology, Zeus was the king of the gods on Mount Olympus. Or your Roman mythology that hits really close to home, Vesta. Vesta. 
the goddess of hearth and home, for whom our city ultimately draws its name. So we know those kind of names. They, they've got more flair to them. But God says his name is I am. I am. God was saying in that something more powerful than all the little G-gods combined. God was saying in that, I am existence itself. I am being itself. I am life itself. You want to know who I am? I am that out of which everything else comes. That's the name that God gives himself. I am. And that's the name that's used for God throughout Scripture. Now, something happened along the way. In between the New, Old and New Testament, in that intertestamental time of about 400 years, the name of God became so revered, so sacred, that it was no longer written nor spoken because they deemed it so holy. If you referred to God, you would simply refer to God as the name. The name. And in the scrolls that they would read in the synagogues on the Sabbath, they would unroll the scroll and they would read from the scroll. But whenever they saw Yahweh in the, in the text, you just wouldn't read that. You would replace it with the word Adonai, which means Lord. And at some point, they actually made the decision that they were going to go back and whenever they did a new scroll, they were going to change it. And everywhere it said Yahweh, they were going to replace it with Adonai because they couldn't imagine if a scroll was damaged or if, you had to if a scroll was destroyed. They couldn't imagine destroying the name of God. Yahweh. So they decided to replace it with Adonai everywhere it said Yahweh. And so if you're ever reading the Old Testament, even in our pew Bibles now, and you see in the Old Testament the word Lord, and the word Lord is in all caps, well then you know that what actually is there is Adonai, and what actually truly is there was Yahweh. But they couldn't write it. Because it was that holy, that special, that unique. So that's the name that God gives himself. I am. So here we are in John's gospel. And Jesus is standing and he uses this phrase in talking to his disciples and others in referencing Himself. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Yahweh, the light of the world. And according to John, when he says that, when he takes the name of God for himself, when he does that, he is actually at the temple in Jerusalem. He is in the holiest place for the Jewish people, the holiest place on earth. 
The temple is built on the top of Temple Mound. Temple Mound is actually Mount Moriah, which is where Abraham went to meet, where Abraham went with Isaac to sacrifice him, and God spared him in the last moment. On that mountain is where the temple sits, and God comes to meet them in the Holy of Holies. And here's Jesus on Temple Mound. And he is in the treasury, which was located in the court of the women. And it was probably the, it was the largest court area. And it was one of the busiest courts in the temple complex. And there was probably a big crowd that day. Because he picked a day that was part of one of their mandatory festivals. When every Jewish person traveled to Jerusalem. It was the festival of tabernacles. And so they would set up little, little cottages, little cabins, little tents all around the Kidron Valley, all around the base of Temple Mound. Because this was a special time for the Jewish people. And during that festival, right in the middle of that courtyard, the courtyard of the women, they would come out and they would, they would build these four large lampstands giant, higher than the temple walls itself. And then they would fill, they would put a bowl on the top of each one and they would fill it with large amounts of oil and lots of wicks. And just at dusk each day, the priest would come and they would put up ladders and they would climb up there to those bowls of oil and they would light, use torches to light those wicks and then the light would, would be cast down into the Kidron Valley and it would light up everything around, a little bit of light going everywhere to all of those people encamped around the area. You see, this was a special festival and the light was special in many ways because, see, that light symbolized the great pillar of fire that led the Israelite people from the land of Egypt through the wilderness and to the promised land. The light on, at Temple Mound, once they had everything lit, that was to remind them of the presence of God that was with them. So imagine Jesus in the treasury with his disciples and others and they're climbing up the ladders and the torches going over into the bowl lighting the wicks and the lights beginning to grow and glow and Jesus looks at his disciples and said I am the light of the world he who follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life the light that symbolizes the presence of God. And Jesus says, Yahweh, I am the light of the world. The meaning at, at that time would have been unmistakable. As the, light of, as the light of God led the people through the wilderness to the promised land, Jesus is the light of the world that will lead us through our wilderness and will lead us even to the promised land. I know, in so many ways, light in and of itself is amazing. It was the first command given by God in Scripture, let there be light. And 
As children, you got to remember, as, as Jim asked the question earlier, how many of you are afraid of the dark? And some hands went up. You know, as children, we're never afraid of the light. We're always afraid of the dark. Because light is powerful. And light is amazing. And, and, and light is illuminating. And so Jesus stands in the court of the temple and he says, I am the light of the world. Jesus comes to shed light on, on what it means and what it looks like to live a life that is faithful to God. Jesus comes to shed light on what it looks like to truly love one another, to be friends with each other, to show us how to put others before ourselves. Jesus comes to shine light on the priorities of God what God deems important. And he even comes to shine light on what our life is really like. Like I said, as children, we're afraid of the dark. We're never afraid of the light. But that changes as we get older, doesn't it? As we get older, it can be that we're, we're more afraid of the light than we are of the dark. Because the light shines in our life. And we can see the places where change needs to happen. The light shines in our life and we can see where our values and God's values don't match up. The light shines in our life and, and we realize that, that we don't treat others the way that God would treat them. Or that we're quite often, we're too busy seeking our own way than we are to seek God's way. That process of growth and discovery happens constantly whenever we allow the light to shine. Whenever we allow the light to shine in our life, but we have to be okay with the light coming in. It's easy to be afraid of the light. But just as God led the Hebrew children through the wilderness to the promised land, the light of Christ is here to lead us through our lives and to help us grow more and more and more into the person that God has called us to be, created us to be. But we have to be willing to allow that light to shine. To reveal the, the things that need to change. Because if we do, if we allow the light of Christ to come into our lives and to shine into our lives, then it's only then that we can allow the light of Christ to shine through our lives. Where we can be a use to God in this world. Where we can be a blessing to others because we have been blessed. Where we can make a difference and live a life of true significance. Because we have allowed the light of Christ to shine in us and then through us to others. I've shared before that I love one of the lighting effects on television and movies where someone in a darkened room will light a candle, one candle, or will light a lantern and suddenly everything is bright. I've always been fascinated by that. As a child, I thought that was real. I remember distinctly watching Little House on the Prairie 
And some noise would happen, and Mary and Laura would peek over the edge of the loft, and Charles and Carolyn would jump up out of their bed, and they would run into that little, well, the only room they had, and they would strike a match, lift the globe, light the lantern, drop the globe, and suddenly light would fill every nook and cranny of their house. Everything was lit. It was amazing. I thought that's what happened when you had a good lantern. And so I decided I was going to buy a lantern. I saved money from my allowance and finally had enough. And I went and I bought my lantern and I bought my lamp oil. And my grandfather taught me how to trim the wick so that it would burn. And I waited for the next power outage. I didn't want to just turn off lights because you just turn off lights. Well, you get a little light creeping in from somewhere, and I didn't want that. I wanted Little House on the Prairie darkness. I wanted it to be dark. But I didn't have to wait long. I grew up in Gadsden. I think one of the city, one of the city traditions was shutting down all the power due to like one crack of lightning somewhere in the, like within a 30-mile radius. You know, we were in the dark a lot in Gadsden. Um, and so I, I waited. I waited. And finally, it came. A storm came through. Immediately, one thing of thunder, lights went out. But I had my lantern. I lifted that, pushed that little lever down, raised the globe up. I struck the match. I put it in there. I did the little dial to raise and lower the wick a little bit just to show that I was experienced. You know, I knew what I was doing. Then I lowered that, I lowered the globe back on it, and there it was. I mean, the light beaming out. It was overwhelming. It was so awesome. The light just was bright as it could be within three feet of that lantern. <laughs> just, just right there, within three feet of the lantern. That's how bright it was. First, I thought I had defective lantern. My dad said, no, son, that's really how they work. And so I took my lantern and I walked around from place to place in my house, from person to person in my family until they would tell me to get the fire out of their face. And I would go find the next person with my lantern. And I thought about that because it didn't happen the way it did on Little House on the Prairie and I was upset for a moment. But now looking back on it, it, it in an amazing way, that's, what, that's the way that Jesus said the world was going to see his light. Not in a little house on the prairie, flip the big breaker and all the lights go, you know, all the spotlights hit everything and it's all illuminated all at once. But it's going to happen one person at a time. Remember on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said to his disciples and, the list, and his listeners, you are the light of the world. He's telling them to go and to shine their light into the people around them. And so that's how the world has been changed by the gospel throughout the years. One person is shining the light of Christ into the life of another person. That little three-foot radius kind of thing. Taking the light of Christ in their life, in their heart, and going and shining that light into the life of someone else. Maybe someone who's still wandering in the wilderness and they need the light of Christ to shine in. Going and having that conversation. Going and doing that act of love. And that's what God's still asking us to do. In a, in a darkened world, God is still asking us to let the light of Christ shine in our lives and then to shine it in the life of others. 
And so if you're a follower of Christ in school, on a team, in a friend group, well, that's where you're called to shine the light of Christ. If you're a family who follows Christ, then in your neighborhood and with your friends and with your extended family, that's where you're called to shine the light of Christ. If you're a Christ-following professional, then in your office and in how you do business, that's where you're called to shine the light of Christ. Jesus is the light of the world. And he shines his light into our lives if we're willing to let that light in. And then when we do, then we can shine that light to others. We can light up the world around us when we give other people hope, like we found when the light shined in our hearts. We can give other people help, like we found when we become part of the body of Christ. We can show other people love and teach them what it means to, to be forgiven and what it feels like to forgive. Because that light is shining in our hearts already. As someone said, Christ has no hands but our hands to do his work today. No feet but our feet to lead people in his way. We are the only Bible the careless world will read. We are the sinner's gospel. We are the scoffer's creed. Every time I hear that poem or read that poem, I always, those two last lines stand out to me the most. We are the only Bible the careless world will read. We are the sinner's gospel. We are the scoffer's creed. We shine the light of Christ into other people's lives around us when they look at our lives and they see that light shining through. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, our relationship with God, our relationship with the church, when we, they see that, it shines the light in their life. I had a friend one time who in his church, who, he, he said that he was sharing one Sunday about shining the light of Christ. And afterwards, a, a church member came up to him and said, I would not be here if, it would, if I would have been dependent on the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John to tell me about Jesus. But the gospel of Andrew, who was a friend of his at work, the good news of Jesus Christ according to Andrew and how his co-worker knew Jesus and how Jesus had changed Andrew's life. He said, that was the good news I needed to hear and see. And that's why I'm here today. We're the only Bible the careless world would read. We're the only, we're, we're the sinner's gospel. We're the scoffer's creed. Jesus said that he is the light of the world. What would your life look like if you weren't afraid of the light, but instead you allow the light of Christ to shine into your life and, and to truly go to all the nooks and crannies, all the areas, all of your life, and show you where those changes and where those adjustments need to happen. 
And what could your world look like if you allowed the light of Christ to shine through you to everyone in every encounter? So that the good news according to you, the gospel according to you, shine the light of Jesus into their life. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. May we allow the light to shine in, and then may we allow the light to shine through. Amen. This morning, our closing hymn is number 216, I Want to Walk as a Child of the Light. If you would like to make the Stadium Methodist your church home, then I invite you to come forward as we sing the second verse this morning. It will be indicated on the screen. Let us stand and sing together.